Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss the quality of care delivered by private Medicaid managed care plans. With me to discuss the topic is Ms. Joan Alker. Welcome, Joan. Thanks very much. Let me begin, as always, with some context. It's estimated the Affordable Care Act will add 16 to 17 million lives to the 60 million Americans already receiving medical care via Medicaid. Of these current 60 million Medicaid enrollees, two-thirds receive their care via managed care companies, and over half of these managed care companies are for-profit. So that means over half of these Medicaid managed care enrollees are in for-profit plans. Concerning the quality of care these plans delivered, in 2011, a study published by the Commonwealth Fund found nonprofit Medicaid plans did significantly better than shareholder-owned plans and ensuring members receive preventive care and managing members' chronic disease. Also, too, per the same Commonwealth Fund report, shareholder-owned plans had a higher average admin costs at 14% compared to their nonprofit managed care organization counterparts at 10%. So with me to discuss the topic again is Joan Alker. Ms. Alker is the co-executive director at the Center for Children and Families and for the past 10 years, a research associate professor at the Georgetown University Health Policy Institute. Her work focuses on health coverage for low-income children and families, with an emphasis on Medicaid, the Children's Health Insurance Program, known, of course, as CHIP, and the Affordable Care Act. She has authored numerous reports and studies on a range of issues, including Medicaid waivers, children and family coverage, premium assistance, and is the principal investigator of a multi-year study on Florida's Medicaid program. Ms. Elker holds a Master's of Philosophy in Politics from St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and a Bachelor of Arts with Honors in Political Science from Renoir College. So with that as background, let's begin. My first question, Joan, what explains the rapid movement by states over the past two decades to provide Medicaid services via contracting with private health plans? And to give you, or to give our listeners an example, between 94 and 04, Enrollment in Medicaid managed care went from 8 million beneficiaries to 27 million. So what explains this? Well, I think we've seen a couple of waves of growing enrollment in Medicaid managed care. And I first started working on this issue in the 1990s. And at that time, I would characterize that as sort of the first wave. And states, I think, in some respect are looking for budget savings when they go to Medicaid managed care. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. Um, But I frankly think they're also looking for budget certainty Um, because, to be honest, we don't have good data to suggest that really these companies are saving a lot of money for the taxpayer. But um, that first wave that we saw really focused more on children, uh, families, did not touch so much on the long-term care side of the program. And today we're really seeing another wave uh, of growing enrollment in Medicaid managed care. I think there's a couple reasons for that. Um, First, you know, states that have done this for a while with the the child and families population are now looking uh, to move into some of the other populations, people with disabilities. Some states are looking to put their long-term care piece of the program into managed care. Um, And so this is kind of the next wave. And I think this was sparked again by the desire to um, achieve, if not budget savings, and budget certainty. Um, by paying a fixed amount per person and essentially handing over a lot of the responsibility to the company. 
Um, and, you know, it's, it's concerning to me because um, the wave of folks who are getting moved into managed care now are those that have very high needs and they're a very costly population. Uh, they're going to be tough to make money on uh, unless you make money the wrong way, which is by cutting needed care. So per your point in sum, uh, these contracts are, are risk basis contracts as they would say as, you, as they would say, and for the state, it gives them quote unquote budget certainty. So they know how much they're going to spend unlike fee for service. That's right. Okay. And I think it, particularly given the recent economic downturn, the challenges states have had, really primarily coming more from the loss of revenues as uh, Medicaid growth has been relatively low on a per capita basis, but nonetheless, obviously enrollment goes up during a recession. Um, and because states have had these budget challenges, again, I think that's prompted another wave of interest. Okay, great. Let me go on. Before I ask about quality of care, let's discuss access or provider participation in the Medicaid program, since this issue will become increasingly more relevant with the program's expansion next year. For example, an 09 Mathematica studied, study showed 50% of active physicians either did not participate in Medicaid or served five or fewer Medicaid beneficiaries. So what can, we, what can be done about this problem? So the, the issue of access to providers in Medicaid is a pretty hot topic right now. Um, as many states consider whether or not to extend Medicaid coverage um, under the Affordable Care Act, um, this question of access has come up a lot. And I think there's a couple of issues um, to mention there. The first is that when you look at the research that's been done with respect to access to, for example, well-child visits, um, other kinds of particularly primary and preventive care, you see that Medicaid beneficiaries are getting uh, pretty much the same access as those in private insurance. And I think that comes as a surprise to a lot of people because we hear a lot of rhetoric about this. So it's not to say there aren't access problems in the Medicaid program. They tend to cluster, I think, more on the specialty side, the dental side, but when you really look at the data, um, Medicaid beneficiaries uh, overall have very good access to care. Now, that's not to say that if we add millions more people to the program, this is going to be a question that states have to address. But this has been a kind of favorite talking point of those uh, who really, frankly, are seeking to undermine the Medicaid program. So it's very careful to be um, pretty concrete with your data. So getting back to the managed care issue, I think managed care companies, again, tout their ability to bring in a bigger provider network as one of the reasons that states um, should turn to them. So again, I don't think we have great data on whether this is true. Um, we don't have um, a lot of evidence that there are better provider networks. Unfortunately, with respect to Medicaid managed care, in general, we don't have good data come from peer-reviewed studies, the kinds of um, really gold standard kind of research we'd like to see, and we don't have that on the access question either. I will say from some work we did in studying Florida's move to Medicaid managed care, they had a pretty controversial uh, pilot program in five counties that I was um, involved in a very comprehensive study of, and uh, we interviewed a lot of providers. We did surveys with the medical societies, and we found actually a lot of providers left the program when managed care came in because they didn't want to have to deal with all these different managed care companies. You know, they said, hey, the state may not be the best payer, but at least they're a prompt payer, and they don't hassle us. Um, and that kind of concern about the managed care companies, um, perhaps, you know, again, I don't think we know definitively, but if anything may have let, led to providers leaving the program in the Florida circumstance. So that's the complaint the administration 
of the program reimbursement specifically gets more complicated. Let me ask this next question, and that, and this will be a two-part question, although you certainly suggested uh, the answer. So what data does exist concerning the quality of care managed care organizations provide uh, their Medicaid members? And then the second question follow-up is, relative to what data does exist, what does the data show? Uh, for example, how does it compare between private uh, or shareholder-owned plans and nonprofit managed care organizations? So, you know, the issue of tracking quality in the Medicaid program more generally and in managed care specifically, I think, is still in the early stages. Um, We saw some improvements on the kids' side when Congress passed the CHIPRA law, um, but those are really voluntary measures. And so it's spotty from state to state. We don't have uniform national data to look at here. Um, You know, the good news is I think states are paying a lot more attention to this. There's a lot more activity on the quality side. The bad news is is that states really have lost an enormous amount of expertise in-house, I think. States have had to let go a lot of their more seasoned uh, state um, employees because of all the budget pressures. So I worry a lot that since we don't have great data and the companies don't like really good data, um, that, you know, it's very tough for states to oversee Medicaid managed care plans in the way that needs to happen so that we have accountability for our taxpayer dollars and we make sure they're managing care the right way, which is by reducing unnecessary use rather than just putting up barriers to needed services. But there is the Social Security Act and there, there are other requirements the Medicaid program needs to satisfy. So as a follow-up, for example, there are, organi- there are these organizations called external quality review organizations. Mm-hmm. And, for example, the Office of the Inspector General at HHS uh, looked at what they were doing or not in a, 19, in a excuse me, 2008 report. So what satisfaction do we derive or get from the work of these external quality review organizations? Well, um, those were included, I believe, in 1997. They were made mandatory by federal law when states were allowed to go to managed care and require managed care for many populations without a waiver. So they've been around for some time now. I think um, they've been helpful in gathering some data. But again, I think we fundamentally are lacking some of the key questions with respect to um, how Medicaid managed care is operating. We don't have good kind of before and after studies Uh, that really look at, um, you know, how people's actual um, outcomes have changed or how um, their timely access to care. We have some data, but I still think we are really lacking in this area. And unfortunately, um, as many of your listeners uh, probably are well aware, facts do not often drive um, political (laughs) discussions and ultimate outcomes. So even to the extent that we do have some good data, um, I don't think in a lot of places it's actually driving the decisions of state legislators. You know, another piece to mention is that the managed care lobby is pretty interested right now in expanding the reach into the Medicaid program in part because of all of the new federal dollars on the table for the Affordable Care Act. Um, And so, you know, we see them moving into new areas. I think in general people feel... Uh, the nonprofit plans do a better job. They have some of the better innovations um, that I've heard of. Um, but I think from, from a sort of a research question, we are still sorely lacking on this area. And maybe one other way to get at this. So there are approximately 
300 of these managed care organizations, for and not-for-profit, that contract with states to deliver Medicaid. What's the managed care world, particularly the for-profit side of the managed care world? What, how proactive are they? I mean, they're soliciting more contracts, as you say, for the less healthy populations, and they'll be at risk. So what's your understanding of what they're doing? Right. So clearly the, the industry as a whole sees some opportunity to make some profits in the Medicaid program. I think that's probably uh, clearest with respect to the newly eligible population that has this 100% federal match on the table. Um, particularly because it's 100% federal match in the first three years and states really set the rates, uh, the states are probably going to be a little more generous uh, with their rates than they would be if they were paying a 50% match on the dollar. Which is to say there's more possible profitability. That's exactly right. Um, so, you know, it's, I'm curious about the long-term care side. I frankly don't understand why a lot of the companies want to go there. Um, you know, that is where the money is in the Medicaid program, but it's also with folks with chronic health conditions. So, so this is the nursing home population. The nursing home population and also, you know, people with um, chronic health conditions, uh, severe and disabling conditions as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, um, that is a little bit of a mystery to me, and I think that's an area we have to keep a really close eye on. Okay. Well, since we did mention the Affordable Care Act uh, a few times at least, there are, um, beyond substantially expanding the Medicaid eligibility population under the Affordable Care Act, there are several provisions in the ACA that will impact mm-hmm. Medicaid or how Medicaid services will be delivered. And, of course, there's been much discussion on accountable care organizations, ACOs, medical homes, etc. So what's your sense relative to how these new models um, will affect um, the quality of Medicaid services delivered? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, there's so much change going on in the healthcare system delivery, not just Medicaid, and a lot of um, changes that one would expect from the Affordable Care Act, as I say, more broadly across the system. So we have a number of demonstrations with respect to Medicaid, and it'll be really interesting to see where those end up. Um, I think the jury's still out, but um, I'm hopeful that the measures in the Affordable Care Act will help us to identify um, good ways um, to cut some of the fat out of the system. The real rub, though, from my mind, being um, somebody who studies the Medicaid program, is that while as a country we have a lot of fat in our healthcare system, and we know that we have the highest per capita spending but very poor quality outcomes with respect to many other countries in the world, with respect to Medicaid, there isn't a lot of fat there. The per capita costs are very low in Medicaid. And that's what concerns me because there's just not, uh, you know, Medicaid is, is probably the most efficient payer in the system. I mean, that's the good news and the bad news. And that's why sometimes you do get access problems because the reimbursement is so low. So, but the point being, there's not a lot of fat there. So some of these larger efforts to contain costs in the healthcare system, be it on the prescription drug side, and Medicaid has done a lot of that, and I think that makes a lot of sense, um, and, and it certainly makes sense to look at some of these populations that have multiple pairs, like the dual eligibles, and see where to go. But I think we have to be very careful with respect to Medicaid because there isn't a lot of fat there. Well, let's, let me circle back a bit and go back to the Florida research. And let me ask you about that. Now, you mentioned or noted that they had a demo in five counties, and then I know the Florida State Legislature the last two years debated heatedly whether to expand it. So first, can you talk about what your research found 
and then did in fact, and my understanding is Florida did go to expand. That's right. Um, Florida is looking to expand, and in fact, a lot of uh, Florida's uh, Medicaid population already is in managed care, about 51%. They don't even need a waiver to do that, but they are waiting and will shortly likely receive a waiver from the federal government to go statewide with the demo that we studied. Um, the couple of important changes um, have happened in Florida since uh, this first uh, got passed in 2006, I think it was, 2005 possibly. Um, the initial conception in Florida and why it attracted so much attention was that it gave the managed care companies uh, unprecedented flexibility to determine the benefits package. And that made a lot of people, including me, very, very nervous. Um, and so, um, as it turns out, um, for a variety of reasons, they ended up um, having their flexibility constrained in some ways, but also not using some of the flexibility that they had. Um, and interestingly, I just looked at the data the other day, um, you actually have in Florida, you have both the for-profit HMOs and the provider-sponsored networks, which are nonprofits. getting back to your earlier question. Uh, most of the big ones are run by the safety net hospitals in the cities where these uh, demos are operating. And over time, just again looking at the data from uh, this current uh, year, uh, the beneficiaries have really voted with their feet and they've moved away from the commercial HMOs to the provider-sponsored networks. Um, and so, um, and they're not capitated, they haven't been capitated, they're going to phase in capitation for them. So when it goes statewide, they will still have that provider-sponsored network option. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see where the enrollment ends up between those two options, the commercial HMOs and the provider-sponsored networks. Florida's also looking to put their long-term care piece into, into managed care as well. And that's, again, as I say, very tricky and needs to be kept a close eye on. And correct me if I'm wrong on cost, and that's, since that's my next question, your study of the five-county demo was unclear relative to whether the commercial or the private plans showed savings. That's right. Um, we found there wasn't any conclusive data one way or the other as to whether or not they had found savings. Um, the University of Florida, who did an evaluation that the state paid for, found some minimal savings. But again, um, we don't know if those savings were achieved by actually managing care better or by simply um, providing more barriers to needed care. So um, this, there was another um, wonderful piece recently by uh, Professor Michael Spear at Columbia University, and he did a comprehensive literature review of Medicaid managed care, and he really found from a national perspective we don't have any evidence that Medicaid managed care saved money. We have a few states that paid their providers pretty well on fee-for-service, and when the managed care came in, they did see some savings for a short period of time. Um, sometimes then the managed care companies will go want to raise their rates um, and threaten to pull out if they don't. So it's kind of a yin and a yang, but from a national perspective, um, what his uh, study found was that we don't have evidence that this has saved money. Okay, so that more or less de facto answered my next question, which is does managed care save money? It is interesting, though, that savings is correlated to what the state is paying because if they're paying more generously, then there's more opportunity for savings. If they're paying less, there's less opportunity. Let me ask you, though, on um, beyond Medicaid, you know, that Medicaid's an efficient payer, where are possible savings? 
Well, I think you know there's a couple of areas that I would look to for savings. Um, I think there always are probably some savings on the prescription drug side. And um, both the federal and the state government have looked to that area, both um, extending the reach of the rebates that the drug companies have to pay, uh, as well as um, promoting the use of generics. Um, those kinds of measures are well worth looking at. I think um, what uh, studies have found and experience shows is that in Medicaid, and I think this is true with, with all payers, you have a very small number of people who are consuming a large percentage of the resources. And so if you really look to those people and you try to manage their care in a very comprehensive community-based way, I'm certain you could see some savings, some reductions in inpatient admissions, for example, um, readmissions, those kinds of things. So if I were a state Medicaid director, that's what I would look to do. I would really target those very, very sick people who are consuming a lot of resources and throw a lot of case management services and comprehensive services uh, at those folks um, in an effort to reduce costs. So this is sort of the hot spotting idea that was written up about Camden, New Jersey. Yes, exactly. We have, I think, time for one more question, and I have to ask you this because actually I did get a call from a colleague who is a public health official in Arkansas, and you know just yesterday Arkansas passed, the Senate passed, uh, the Republicans who dominate the state legislature now both Houses have passed the Democratic governor's idea, Governor Beebe's idea, to allow uh, the monies they would have received for expanding the Medicaid program to 133%, to allow that money then to have those uh, covered lives otherwise shop for coverage in their state exchange. What's your sense of that? Now, people argue that um, this is going to cost the federal government more money because there will be more people in the exchanges receiving subsidies. And my understanding further is the Secretary of HHS has preliminarily, at least, agreed to this arrangement. So what's, what's your comment Well, it's actually uh, doing a lot of work on this because it's actually a premium assistance model that I've written a lot about. So they won't be receiving subsidies in the exchange. Essentially, they'll still be Medicaid beneficiaries, but um, the state uh, will be buying them the exchange coverage. So what that means is the state will be buying the exchange coverage. The state will also have to make sure, and, and um, the secretary has been pretty clear about this in some guidance they released recently, that they get the full Medicaid benefits package, they get all the Medicaid cost-sharing protections. So they'll have to either wrap around or they'll buy plans for them that provide a Medicaid benefit package, if you will. So, um, so I mean, I'm happy that Arkansas moved forward. Um, I think we're seeing a lot of um, opposition right now to the extension of Medicaid coverage in state legislatures, and that's really because this has become the current flashpoint in the anti-Obamacare, the Tea Party activity. This is really not something that any big interests are opposed to. Um, big business wants it. The insurers want it. The HMOs want it. The hospitals want it. It's really ideological opposition to health reform and to President Obama. So I'm glad that Arkansas moved forward. I think there are um, a lot of questions about this approach. I think it makes more sense uh, for a smaller uh, slice of the population they're looking at. I think it may end up being more expensive. Um, but at the end of the day, um, it's good news that these folks are going to get coverage. So just to be clear, for a clarifying question, so it is the case, you're, you're correcting so I, I misunderstood. So it is the case that the state of Arkansas will cover 100% that these uh, persons shopping in, this, in their state exchange will not then enjoy a 
federal subsidy up to the 400% of poverty? No, as long as they're Medicaid beneficiaries, the state Medicaid program, which will be using 100% federal dollars, will buy them exchange coverage. That's the way to think about okay. it. Now, once their income goes up, say it goes up to 200% of poverty from 110% of poverty, anything over 133, they'll be eligible for a subsidy through a premium tax credit. And that's one of the reasons folks like this approach, because the churning between Medicaid and the premium tax credits will be reduced. They could stay with their same plan in theory. Um, I think that's why this makes more sense from the population from 100 to 133% of poverty, because those folks are more likely to see income changes across that threshold. The folks you know, below poverty, I think there's going to be a lot less of that movement in and out of the premium tax credits. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. And with that, I believe we're at our time boundary. So Joan, I thank you again, and maybe if you have time in the future, welcome to have you back. I'd love to. Thank you again.